You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Drake is the author of more than 60 novels, including the Hammers Slammers series, the Star Hunters series, the Crown of Isles series, and many other novels and collections. His upcoming novel in the Lord of the Isles series is The God's Return. Thank you for speaking with me, David. Hi, Rick. Um, glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that interests me about your work is your take on the fantasy genre. You, I think that, in a sense, your very first story you sold was to August Derleth. It was a horror uh, story. That's correct. Yeah, uh, first four stories I sold were to Mr. Derleth, and they were horror stories. And I think, in a sense, all your work since then could really be called horror. Until 1997 or so, when I wrote Redliners and was able to write more things. Yes, it, it really was, whatever genre it was on the surface, it was horror underneath. I, I was trying to deal with Nam. I mean, it's really that simple. Well, tell us a little bit about your history. You were uh, brought up in Iowa, and, and you know, you had, uh, you had a, a very normal upbringing. And, oh, and absolutely. Here yeah. you were in 1970. You're on your way to being a lawyer. Uh, yeah, well, actually, 1968, I was on my way to being a lawyer, and I was, you know, literally in the middle of... Uh, Duke University Law School. Uh, I had a year and a half, and I had a year and a half to go. And uh, they eliminated the graduate student deferment in 1968, so I was drafted. Uh, in 1969, they brought in the draft lottery, but in 68, actually a third of my basic training company were college graduates, like me. Uh, this is not something most people seem to be aware of. So. In, in 1968, I was in basic training with a third of the, the company was uh, black kids from central Detroit, uh, many of whom had been shoeshine boys, and a third of the company was uh, basically white kids from western North Carolina, uh, similar educational backgrounds, but white. And a third of us were college graduates. And let me tell you, that was... Um, that was a cultural experience for all three groups, I think. Now, had you been interested in writing before this? Uh, yes. Um, I had actually sold uh, two stories to Mr. Derleth, uh, one while I was an undergraduate and one just after I started law school. So I I'd sold two horror stories, and I basically it was a hobby. I mean, some people play golf, some people play tennis. I wrote, you know, fiction. Uh, it, it was it was fun, but I was on my way to being a lawyer. You were on your way to being a lawyer, and then you were taken off that track. Tell us uh, about what happened when you were plucked out of uh, the the bosom of the Mid America white lawyerdom into the cauldron of Vietnam. Um, it screwed me up pretty royally. Uh, I believe me, I, I didn't volunteer for anything uh, when. They got me into basic. I was like like anyone in my situation. I was sent to a, a separate office where a first lieutenant 
gave me a list of things which, with my educational background, I would be allied, allowed to sign up for uh, with the, they, they actually stated it bluntly, but everyone knew it. Uh, if you had any college and you were drafted, if you did not pick a school and get out of it, uh, that is, you know, pick a specialty, uh, you went as 11 Bravo. You, you went as infantry. They made it quite clear. If you are a college graduate and you do not give us something extra, we will make you an infantryman, uh, which is basically what happened to Joe Haldeman, by the way. Um, in my case, they kept listing things, and really quite a long list, but all of them required uh, a commitment. See, the, the draft commitment was for two years. Uh, all of the things they offered were for three years or for four years. Uh, and it would have you know, prevented me from going as infantry. But I told him, uh, you've got me for two years. You can do anything you please in those two years. I am a citizen. Uh, but I will not give you one day. And uh, they finally got down to the end of the list. And one of the options had been a 47-week Vietnamese language course, uh, which would have required a two-year commitment uh, in addition to the two years. Uh, however, because of the influx of college graduates, they had created a new course that was the same 47-week course in 30 weeks. And you could do that on the minimum draft commitment. And, you know, if you passed a, um, the Army language specialty test, and if they happened to pick you. And I, I didn't see it. I mean, it was obvious if I took a Vietnamese language course, it was obvious where I was going. But it was obvious where I was going anyway, so uh, I, I took the, uh, the language course and became, and was accepted for it. It was funny, um, the, it was a, the test was a 60-point test, and what they did was sit you down with uh, questions and answers in a, a non-language. I, I think it was a Russian-based international language. But, the uh, Russian version of Esperanto? Yes, yes. Wow. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know what it was, but you know, it was pretty obvious from the context what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I wound up with a uh, passing grade was 35. Uh, I got a 55, and I, to this day, I don't know what I missed because it didn't seem that difficult to me. I'm, you know, I, I had a lot of languages as an undergraduate. But um, there were four of us in the battalion of 600 people. There were four of us who took it and passed it. And there were two of us in my squad, as a matter of fact, who got 55s. The, the other fellow in the squad was, uh, he was a, going for his physics PhD at the University of Chicago. Uh, I mean, we were, we were a pretty smart group. This seems like a, this seems like a, a, a really high, high intellect uh, bunch of guys to be yes, grunts in the uh, army. This, this was this was Robert S. McNamara's last gift to America was to to take top grad students and send them to Nam. Uh, <laughs> Not the gift that has kept on giving. Oh uh, well, I don't know. It <laughs> kept on giving to me. <laughs> but um, there there was another guy in. Um, different company whose name began with W. Uh, he got a 47. 
and there was a fourth guy who got a 35. Uh, and we were D, G, the other guy in my squad, J, the fellow with a 35. They had two slots, and they took the 55, the 55, and the 35. And 47 went as 11 Bravo. Mm. Uh, you know, and it, it, if my name had been Wozniak, um, you know, I would have been 11 Bravo. Uh, but instead, I went to interrogation school, language school and interrogation school, and became a, an enlisted interrogator with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Now, you described your feelings over there as being, um, you, you were living in a kind of a state of, of fear and, and terror. I was completely shut down. I mean, basically, it, it went beyond fear. Uh, at some level, I gave myself up for dead. And it, I wasn't afraid anymore. I was just completely shut. Look, you're in a situation where you're in a, a group of three tracks going down to the water point, and you decide to ride on the second track. And so the vehicles are going down to the water point, and one of the vehicles runs over a mine. And it's the second vehicle, but it could have been the third, and it could have been the first. So you have made a decision, and you know the vehicle flips over on its back. We're talking ACABs, and a 20-pound mine. It flips over on its back, and the cupola goes flying off, and the driver is actually not, he's battered, but he's basically okay. Uh, if you'd been in the cupola, you're dead. If, in fact, you're, um, as, as the TC was on that one, if he's sleeping as, uh, you know, in, inside the uh, fighting compartment, then he's okay. He winds up with all of the ammunition containers that were on the floor lying on top of him, but he's not dead because he wasn't in the cupola. And if you're in the third track, you're okay too. But you have made the decision that is a life-threatening, life-ending decision when you decided to get on the third track instead of the second track. And so, look, nothing bad happened to me. The only physical scar I wound up with was uh, staphylococcus. But, you know, I got boils. Uh, but I gave myself up for dead. And no, that, that isn't actually fear. That's just complete sh shutdown. And um, this, is, this is not a good way to live. Actually, it isn't a matter of living. And I was very fortunate when I got back to the world to be able to write. Now, uh, <laughs> you've also said too, and I think this is really an interesting kind of dualistic perception, that while you were there, did you realize that you were, in, you were, you yourselves and, and the American presence there was far more dangerous to everybody there than they were to you? Oh, hell yes! I mean, listen, I was with a, an armored unit. I mean, this, they had AK-47s. We had 90-millimeter main guns, Cal-50s, 
the M16 for my unit, that was, that was a backup weapon. Uh, we were the Black Horse. Uh, you know, we, we, look, there, there are units and units, and, and there were elite units in Vietnam, and some of them everybody knows about. Uh, you know, first air cav, certainly. Uh, the Marines, certainly. Uh, but we were the Black Horse. We were the one separate armored cavalry regiment in Vietnam. We sometimes operated under the operational control of the first air cav, but we were an elite, and we were a small elite unit, and we're the best people. We were the best. And I didn't ask to come, God knows, but I was very lucky to have been dropped into the Black Horse rather than something like the Americal Division or Fourth Infantry, which were dumping grounds. Uh, if, if you wonder why My Lai happened, look at the people who wound up in the Americal Division. It's, it's really that simple. You had low-end soldiers, and the officers were not significantly better, or they wouldn't have been there, whereas the, the Black Horse was a unit that everybody, all the officers, strove to get into. You're in Vietnam. You're a highly educated young man. You're halfway to being a lawyer. You're a published writer. And, and as an amateur writer, that's a really satisfying feeling. Yeah. I mean, it's great. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a, enough of a knowledge of the horror genre to write for August Derleth, which is some pretty specialized knowledge. Um, talk about taking those kind of perceptions of, you know, Lovecraftian cosmic horror into a situation, it sounds like, in a sense, you had an almost Lovecraftian response. You know, I think that's actually correct, though I would compare myself more to Clark Ashton Smith. Exactly, uh, yes, who saw no humanity. Exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, Lovecraft uh, gets the... He is, is stated to have been creating cosmic horror and all that, but, but really the utter bleakness in that field uh, was Clark Ashton Smith, who would write things which simply did not accept the possibility of any merit in humanity. A and he wasn't kidding. I mean, you, you get the feeling with Lovecraft, I get the feeling with Lovecraft, that it was posturing. Uh, I think with Smith that a that some of his stories, you know, the, the Black Eidolon, um, the Garden of Adamtha, uh, Isle of the Torturers, uh, the, this is really how he viewed the world, and that was basically the world I was in in Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> it, it, this was not my idea, <laughs> but, you know, you, you deal with, with what you got. Now, you, you came out of Vietnam, as you said, physically unscathed. Absolutely. I was very thin. Mm -hmm. I, I probably weighed about 120 pounds. There, there's a piece, there's a picture of me on, may I say, shit-burning detail on, because that's what it was, but mm -hmm. you know, there, there's a, a picture of me disposing of solid waste with diesel fuel and uh, an engineer stake in the field. And a friend of mine looked at it and said, 
were you really that thin? And yeah, I really was. We didn't eat much mm. here either in the field. <laughs> but no, I was physically fine. <laughs> you came back to um, the United States. It's 1970, I 19, guess? Uh, January 15th, 1971, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. so, so you're back in the United States. You're still a highly educated young man. You're still three-quarters of the way through law school or halfway through life. What halfway. did you decide to do? <laughs> I went back to law school, of course. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, 72 hours after I was uh, sitting in Benoit waiting for my flight back to the world, uh, I was in the lounge of Duke University Law School waiting to start my fourth semester of law school. That, that was the My Caring Countries transition program for it's Vietnam veterans. Uh, the, um, boy, <laughs> you know, for a lot of people, an elite law school is, is really a very stressful mm -hmm. occasion. I, I don't remember anything about that last year and a half. I don't remember a thing. Uh, my grades were okay. I mean, I, I wound up in the top third of my class. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't remember a darn thing. Um, I'd been on Law Journal. Uh, I dropped off that when I came back. Um, they're just, uh, life's too short for bull. I, I mean, it, it, was, it was really that simple. And I thought, you know, this may have bad career effects on me, and I don't care. I've, I've, I'm not going to do this. The Lovecraftian approach to law school. Well, apparently. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't do anything very positive for my legal career, but uh, no, you, you ask what I did, and I tell you, what I did was exactly what was in front of me. Mm -hmm. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other because I, I couldn't think beyond that. I just had to keep going, hoping that I was going to get to the end someday. And... Um, Finished law school, spent eight years as assistant town attorney for the town of Chapel Hill. Quit lawyering completely then. Now, tell me, part of law school, there's a lot of writing in law school. Were you writing fiction at this time, too, yes. still, and uh, reading? Yes, yes, I was, although, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, tell me what you were reading in Vietnam. What are you reading in Vietnam? Oh, yeah. What, yeah. what were you reading? <laughs> oh, my goodness, I was reading, um, uh, started rereading um, the Aeneid. Um, I, I'm fluent in Latin. And when I say I started rereading the Aeneid, I mean I had the Oxford classical text of the Aeneid, and I was reading that. I was reading, uh, I got fascinated with the, um, the fourth century uh, situation, uh, third century crisis, actually. Uh, of the Roman Empire, and I was reading uh, Latin panegyrics uh, to get, uh, you know, views of Constantius Chlorus. And this is why you were making the choice to get, get into the third yeah. <laughs> unit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and so I guess some of this... I was crazy as a bed bug, <laughs> but, but un understand, I, yeah, I, I, was, I was a Latin major as an undergraduate, a history and Latin major, and... Uh, I, I just dove into Latin as I would, at the time I said to keep myself sane, but of course I wasn't <laughs> keeping myself sane, <laughs> but I was keeping myself between the ditches. Uh, years uh, later I got a, an email from uh, a guy who'd been in the 
the same unit, uh, first squadron, uh, second squadron, when I was with second squadron and uh, in Cambodia. He said, all I really remember about you is you're always reading Latin. I said, yeah, well, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I taught myself French. I taught myself to read French. Um, one of my buddies there was uh, got a correspondence course in French through you know through the army, and he didn't use it. And I said, "Can I use your books?" So I taught myself to read French. I was walking around with um, uh, Théâtre uh, de Molière. I didn't really learn to pronounce it. But I, I had this French paperback with 10 plays of uh, Moliere in it. And there's a really funny story about that. If, if, Go, okay. tell me. <laughs> okay, well, and, and I, I will I'll try to clean up the language a bit. But um, so Don't, we, we'll, we'll censor it. Okay, I'm okay. The podcast. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, we're, we're, wearing, we're wearing jungle fatigues, which and they have large cargo pockets. Mm -hmm. And so you could Something stick that survived with you. Yes, it did. Yes, it, I, I, I have, <laughs> listen, uh, that's, uh, and, and listen, they're, they're cotton, they're ripstop, they, they last, they're more comfortable than jeans. Yes, I'm big believer in jungle fatigues, but I don't wear them in any pattern that, you know, khaki or black or some solid color. Mm -hmm. um, so you're in the jungle with Moliere in your pocket. Yes, I was. Uh, it, but so I'm walking around, and I've, I've got this copy of uh, the Theater of Moliere in my pocket, and it's a typographic cover. And it was just a book that happened to be in the unit. I have no idea why, but I picked it up, and I'm, I'm reading Moliere. I read several plays by Moliere. And uh, so all that really shows is the upper edge of it sticking out the top of my cargo pocket. And it's yellow, because French paperbacks were yellow. Well, at the time, the nightstand paperbacks, which were the, the standard fuckbook of the late 60s, mm -hmm. had yellow typographic covers. So I'm walking <laughs> around with Moliere in my pocket, and guys say, oh, what you got there? And they'd pull it out, and they'd look at it, and they'd give me a funny ex look. And I'd, why is everybody interested that I'm reading French? I mean, you know, <laughs> it took me days to realize they thought it was Juicy Lucy or something of the sort. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, it's Moliere. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so, so you've come back from two years in Vietnam reading Moliere, the Aeneid, and Roman yep. history. Yeah. And... Uh, and finishing law school, yeah. Finishing, so you finished law school. I did. W were, you, were you writing fiction then? Uh, I actually sold one story that I, uh, that I wrote while I was in Vietnam. Uh, it was after I was returned to, from the field to Xeon, and I was charged quarters, you know, CQ one Sunday morning, and I was typing up uh, this little story. It's not much of a story, but, uh, you know, I was typing it up, and I heard a bang, and I turned around and looked behind me, and there was a, another bang, much louder, as the, the ammo dump blowing up. And then there, you know, this, this big, it's weird. If you've never seen a really large explosion, and, and we're not talking Hollywood here, we're talking mm -hmm. high explosive. This mm -hmm. is not, you know, gasoline or something. And then there's this huge blam, and there's this huge orange bubble, this big orange bubble. And... Uh, well, that was kind of the end, except for the 155 rounds that kept dropping down. They, they weren't fused, but, you know, it, 
if you're in the wrong place, a 95-pound um, artillery shell will, will make a dent. No one was killed. Uh, you know, the two people who set it off by accident, uh, F troop was coming in from the field. And there's you, literally an F troop? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I thought that was just stupid. No, no, TV no, no, no. No, that, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. It was uh, uh, Second Squadron was um, E Troop, F Troop, mm -hmm. G Troop, and H Company, mm -hmm. because uh, H Company was a tank company. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the equivalent of a company in cavalry is troop. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're darn right there was an F Troop. Uh, they were they were coming in from the field, and you um, you have to turn in all your arms and ammunition when you come in from the field. To, mm -hmm. You know, the Zion big base camp. So guys had a truck and were tossing ordnance out the back, and one of the things they were tossing out was a mortar crate, which you know think of it as an orange crate. You have slats uh, full of smoke grenades. And so they're just tossing stuff out because it's Sunday morning. They're trying to get done with a nasty job so they can, you know, go on liberty anyway. And um, so they toss out this orange crate that's full of smoke grenades, and one of the rings is hanging out the side of the crate, and it caught on the tailgate latch. So they hurl into this pile of ordnance. They hurl a box that starts smoking, whereupon they immediately jumped in the truck and drove out. And then the first explosion was the pile of stuff they had just thrown out of their truck. And the second explosion was everything that was close to that. And the third explosion was everything else that was in the ammo dump. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I did, this is your background for Lovecraftian fiction. Uh, yeah, well, it, uh, I thought, Huh. <laughs> I wonder what that was. <laughs> it is uh, the darndest thing. The, the chapel was actually right next to the ammo dump and it, for a Sunday morning. Uh, but um, it was a little afternoon, so there, uh, there was nobody in the chapel. But because of the berm around the, the ammo dump, it was only the stuff above the berm. But the, the chapel was this huge A-frame, you know, mm -hmm. sheet metal uh, building. And everything above berm level was just ripped off. Uh, it, was, it was pretty impressive. Uh, and I say, this had absolutely nothing to do with enemy action. I mean, I, <laughs> the, I, I can understand why you would experience Lovecraftian terror in I, this. It's, you can you die. You have no, yeah. You can die. You can die, and, and people do die, and you have absolutely no control. And, you know, going to church that morning could have been the fatal decision. Really that simple. Seems It's interesting the way you, you phrase this, because you've said this a few times, that it's, it's a decision. And <laughs> you never know when what the decision you make will be the fatal decision. Yeah. It, it's really easy to trace back from the, you know, the ultimate result. But you cannot predict. You know, you are actually doing something. You are making a choice to do X rather than Y. And the result of that, you live or you die, can only be determined after the fact. But it is a clear dichotomy. He took 
he stepped off on his left foot instead of his right foot, and therefore he died, or he went to law school. You went to law school. I went to law school, yeah. And, uh, and wrote some, some fine Lovecraftian fiction in law school? Um, well, I, I, I wrote some, uh, some Lovecraftian fiction in law school, and um, I sold one more story to Mr. Derelict, and then he died. And I couldn't sell the sort of historical horror that I was writing. Uh, my friend Manley Wade Wellman and uh, Carl Wagner were both writers. They both in the, the Chapel Hill-Durham area where I was. And we would get together. They suggested I use my Vietnam background. I wrote a couple of stories using Vietnam as a background that is the way you would use the French Revolution as mm -hmm. a background mm -hmm. or use the American Southwest as a background. You know, here's a, a horror story that is set in Vietnam. Here is a science fiction story that is set in Vietnam with a, a UFO, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But they were standard horror and standard um, science fiction, you know, <coughs> first contact stories. Mm -hmm. They just used an unusual setting and they sold. Then, then I thought, oh, instead of just using Vietnam as a setting, I will transmute it. I will write about, I will write military SF. There's, you know, a long history of military SF. I will write military SF, but I will use the real kind of combat background I know as, you know, to infuse it. It won't be set in Vietnam, but it'll be a unit like the kind of unit I was assigned to in Vietnam. That was a Hammer Slammer series. Now, what made you decide to use the literature of the fantastic and horror tropes and science fiction tropes to talk about your, your experience in Vietnam instead Distance. of just talking about it? Distance. Distance. Did I say I was screwed up? I was deeply, 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 I'm still screwed up, but not nearly as badly as I was. Uh, I absolutely needed the distance. And, you know, there was a reason I was reading Latin. Took me completely out of the world I was in. Uh, I had always read science fiction and fantasy, and using them as the medium in which I told my stories gave me the distance that I, I I couldn't, still can, not easily. I mean, I, I, I write a bit straight about Vietnam. Now, I can talk to you straight about Vietnam without, without bad things happening. Uh, but not in 1972, not in 1974. I needed the distance. Well, talk about creating Hammer Slammers. This is a, I mean, it's a classic series, and, and it's a, a, a wonderful example uh, of using the fantastic to say things about reality that you can't say while being real. Yeah, um, but as I say, I was just, what I was doing, but I was not aware of it, what I was doing was using writing as therapy. I was not aware of this. I said, I'm a hobbyist. I'm a lawyer. I write for fun. You know. um, but I did use the kind of unit, an, an elite armored unit. And until you've been in something like that, unless you've had the good luck, and it was good luck, 
to be in an elite unit. You have no idea how that feels. Uh, it was us and them, but there was an us. It wasn't me against the world. It was us against the world. And we were the best, and we were, we were darn sure we were the best. And, you know, you, you can talk to any nom vet, and if they were, if, you know, if they, if they were in a unit like the 1st Air Cav, or if they were a Marine, uh, they'll say, no, no, we were the best. But nobody will say that the Black Horse doesn't deserve a look-in. You know, it, it, it's one of those. Uh, and, and there really was, it's not really camaraderie. It's that you knew the guy next to you was going to be doing his job. And you were going to be doing your job also, you know, not because you believed in the war. I, mean, I was a draftee. A lot of us were draftees. Uh, and in, in 1970, nobody believed in the war. Nobody believed in the utility of what was happening. Uh, we had seen enough of the Vietnamese government, such as it was, and the Vietnamese army, such as it was, that nobody thought that this is something that would survive or should survive. But we were there, and so we were doing our jobs. And if that meant going into Cambodia, we were the spearhead into Cambodia. You were. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, yes, we were. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not. My God. Yeah. This is, this is fascinating. Well, now, it, one thing that strikes me, too, that I think speaks to your your fiction is this experience of taking you know what was then the absolutely highest technology available in the world mm -hmm. into the most primitive places in the world you were taking 20th century technology into places that were approximately the same level of technology that you were reading about when you were reading about 4th century Rome yeah, actually, that that's true. Although by by the time I was there, we were dealing with the NVA, mm -hmm. and but you know, basically, it was small arms. I mean, you know, sure, uh, twelve point seven millimeter uh, machine guns mm -hmm. uh, when we went into Snool. Uh but you know, these are these are modern in the sense of nineteen twenties anti-aircraft mm -hmm. machine guns, comparable to our Cal fifties. Uh, we were in M48 tanks, not M60 tanks, because the 90-millimeter main gun of the M48 was, um, it was basically the same running gear. Mm -hmm. uh, the 90-millimeter main gun, we had more ammunition stowage than an M60's 105 did, and we didn't need a heavy gun with the uh, canister and, um, to a degree, green ball, uh, shrapnel, dial a dink. <laughs> you, you said it to, you know, if, if, if your target was 800 yards away, you, you rotated a nose fuse and it set the, uh, the round off at 800 yards to, to spread the ball. So it was a true shrapnel round, but we called them dial-a-dink. <laughs> look, uh, no, no army in the field is, is politically correct, and believe me, we were not politically correct. And, you know, the... The joke, and it wasn't entirely a joke, uh, but any combat unit, uh, certainly ours, that the way to solve the Vietnam War is to take all the good Vietnamese and put them on an island. And then you start in the south and you move north and you nuke everything 
you just bomb everything up to the Chinese border, and then you bomb the island. <laughs> and, and that is really the, and, and that is why all the hearts and minds stuff, uh, people, you can't do it that way. If you send in combat troops and tell them to engage in combat, uh, that, that is the attitude you will have. That is the attitude we had. And we were, we were fine in a free fire zone. But we should never have been taken out of a free fire zone because we operated the same way. Uh, you shoot at us, we shot back. We shot back with everything we had. And if you were squatting in the middle of a village, we shot back anyway. Now, it's, it strikes me, one of the things that you said that really fascinated me was that it was not me versus them, but us versus them. Yes. And this kind of camaraderie is, is you know, beautifully evoked in a science fictional setting with, with hammer slammers. And, and um, That's why I couldn't sell them. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. Uh, I, I, I had been selling fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was, my skills were of, of a professional level. And I started writing the Hammer Slammer stuff that I was convinced, okay, this, this is something I'm, I'm doing. This is really good. This is genuinely different, uh, and it's real, and, you know, this is really neat. year and a half, I could not sell a word. Boy, I was frustrated. Uh, well, I was frustrated anyway. So you were rejected by both the genre fiction and the literary fiction worlds, because it strikes me that, I mean... Well, literary fiction wouldn't have taken anything written in genre, and I wasn't writing... Actually, I did write one story that was uh, mainstream, and I got... <laughs> it was the darndest... I was so desperate. Uh, but I, I wrote a story about a fragging, and I sent it off to the... Uh, Geez, Michigan Quarterly. And I, I, I got back the, the nicest rejection slip. Uh, Dear Mr. Drake, uh, we, we cannot use this story, but we are very impressed by it. You know, it's just straight, you know, th this, is, this is a fragging. Um, and, and why? Um, and I, I look at it, and boy, that must have really freaked them out when that came <laughs> over their transom. <laughs> I imagine so. Now, <laughs> they were nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you decided you needed the distance. Yes. Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> to, to, to create Hammer Slammers. Talk about that transmutation process. As a, as a writer, did you just sit down and immerse yourself in this new world that you were creating? Because no, you were cre no, 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 oh, really. really? Oh. Uh, it, it was much simpler than that. Uh, you talk about the new world you're creating. I wasn't. I was taking a crack armored unit. And that was the world I'd been living in for a year. And I'd, all I did was give them ray guns instead of 90 millimeter main guns and Cal 50s. That's, it, it wasn't hard at all. And I put them, the, the only difference was I made it a mercenary unit um, rather than, you know, something happening on a single planet. Um, and and that, that's a, a common trope in science fiction. I mean, mm -hmm. Andre Norton did it extremely well. Uh, Jerry Pornell uh, did it a little later. Uh, very, very good work. Uh, 
Clash by Night by uh, Henry Kuttner and uh, C.L. Moore in 1943. I mean, you know, the, the, the using a mercenary unit rather than a, a national army is, you know, perfectly standard in the field. Uh, that's the only difference. Um, well, know, there's one I, other difference, too. Uh, the enemy. The enemy is them. <laughs> the enemy is always them. And I, in the Hammer series, the enemy is almost invariably uh, lower technology human colonists. Somebody has hired a, an expensive tank unit to go deal with lower technology you know, frequently revolting peasants. And so that's not so very different either, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> now, uh, and, and as I say, these stories did not sell. <laughs> uh, did they, they didn't sell to, like, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction? or no. was that? Now, had you sold to... Where, yes, I'd, I'd, I'd sold to Analog. I had sold to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh... I, they, they were bounced, actually it was a funny one, um, the editor of Analog, uh, Ben Bova, quite a good guy, uh, who'd bought story from me and bought other stories from me later, but uh, his rejection slip was, well, we've got Joe Haldeman and Jerry Pornell doing the same thing and I don't think we need a third of these. Uh, the, the notion was that Jerry Parnell's Falkenberg's uh, Legion and uh, Joe's Forever War and my Hammer Slammers were all the same. And the only similarity they actually had is they were all war stories written by people who'd actually, who actually were veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the only similarity. But it was... as. This was really very new in mm -hmm. the early 70s. Sure, sure. This, uh, nobody had ever seen anything like this before because coming out, out of a, well, except Will Tolkien came out of World War One. Yes, <laughs> but, but you talk about distance. And mm -hmm. yes, uh, I, I actually had some academic twit uh, when I, I made some comment about Mordor could not have existed without the Western Front in World War One. Oh well, there's much more to it. He's talking about the Black Country. You know, you you idiot. You, you've never been in a war. You've never been a veteran. You cannot conceive of what that did to Tolkien. It's really obvious to another veteran what it did to Tolkien. Especially but, since he was a scholar. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and as so yourself. Were, as yes. You <laughs> that that's it. Uh, you know, people like him and uh, Robert Graves and. Um, um, Oh, blocking on his name, the the poet uh, Siegfried Sassoon. We're all in the same, uh, you know, battalion of the Welsh Fusiliers. Yeah, you you bet. Uh, must have been not terribly <laughs> dissimilar, actually. It, how? Where? When did Hammer Slammers first get published? Who did it? And what did they say to you? Oh, that's that's an interesting story. Um, I. I'd been writing the stories, and they'd been being bounced. And one of the places that had bounced them was Galaxy Magazine. And the editor of Galaxy was fired. And it was Eiler Jacobson, who was in a field that has had a number of bad editors. He's arguably one of the worst editors in the field. 
Uh, I, I don't mean because, I mean, you, you know, they, this is a man who took over from, uh, from Fred Pohl in 1943 and then took over from Fred Pohl in 1970. And, you know, he was terrible both times, and Fred was a wonderful editor both times. And, you know, I, that's neither here nor there, though. But um, his assistant, however, had recommended purchase of the stories. Mm. His assistant was Jim Bain. Well, Jacobson was fired, and Jim Bain became editor, and he then ran around and uh, got back a number of stories whose, whom he had recommended to purchase, and um, Jacobson had rejected. And uh, years later, I, I thanked Jim for that, and he said, oh, David, uh, Jake rejected much better stories than yours. Uh, he, he rejected uh, an Ursula Le Guin story the day before the revolution that went on to win the nebula. Mm. I mean, he was really a terrible editor. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but, uh, you know, Jim got the, the first two Hammer stories back. And um, he admitted to me after the fact he didn't like him. Didn't like him, didn't understand him. Uh, they're written with a flat affect. Mm -hmm. And I... But they were literate. Mm -hmm. He, they would fill pages that he would not have to spend a lot of time rewriting. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Galaxy had payment problems, so they were not getting stories from people who could sell elsewhere. Mm. And um, a matter of economic necessity. Yes, exactly. Le led you to the creation. Publication of Hammer Slammer. Exactly. And later, Jim and I became close friends and all that. But, um, no, he bought them simply because he had pages to fill that he couldn't send out a magazine with blank pages in it. It was really that simple. And uh, I wrote three other stories while in the series while Jim was editor. Uh, he bought one and rejected the other two. The fact I kept writing them indicates that there was something more going on than me writing for money, mm. although I didn't know what it was. Uh, as I say, it was therapy, but I, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but I did it. Now, you were a lawyer when you yes, were Yes, I was. I, I was assistant town attorney for the town of Chapel Hill. This is a small town in the south in the 70s. Well... Yes, Not but big. but it's it's a university mm. town. Th sure. Think of it as as Ann Arbor in the south. But yeah. Talk about um, the contrast. I mean, you're just a study in contrast here. You're writing weird science fiction, and I presume you and you were probably still, um, you know, reading both fourth century. Roman history oh, sure. and Lovecraftian fiction oh, sure. and science yeah. fiction, yeah. and your town attorney in a small town. I, I, I rewrote ordinances. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if they needed changes in the dog ordinance, um, that was me. Uh, you know, if there was a <laughs> development question, that was me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was very much. It was not criminal work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know that. That was not my job. I, I was police attorney for a bit. I actually wrote the uh, the policy that got the Chapel Hill police hollow point bullets. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Highly qualified, I would say. Well, I, <laughs> I, I I was yes. I, I got along fairly well with the uh, with the police. Uh, 
but uh, I, I've had people ask, well, did you use a pseudonym? No. Uh, nobody was going to run into my fiction unless they read that sort of fiction. Mm -hmm. So y you were self-selecting for people who would not be offended mm -hmm. by what I was writing and saying. Now, you and I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the other thing, but I didn't care. <laughs> Talk, uh, did you do this in the morning before you went to work, after work? Uh, after work, yeah, after mo work. mostly after work, yeah. Um, I would sit in the evening. and, uh, but, but it was really a, um, it, it, this was a hobby. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was something I did. I, I wrote a bunch of stuff. I didn't, um, I didn't, I, I was, not a serious writer in the sense that uh, a number of things I wrote, I never bothered typing up even to sec. I, I wrote holograph. I wrote longhand. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things I didn't ever bother typing up. Some of what I did type up, I didn't um, bother trying to put into final form and, and send off anywhere. Occasionally, I would finish a story, uh, and then I would send it somewhere. Mm -hmm. I... Um, I would, because I had been writing effective horror fiction, mm -hmm. uh, I started getting what amounted to commissions, or somebody would say, hey, I'm opening a, um, an original anthology. Can you do something for me? Uh, I remember, it's kind of a funny story, too. Um, I um, wrote a Lovecraftian, literally, Lovecraftian horror story for Ramsey Campbell you know, for New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, Cthulhu, but it's uh, it Lovecraft explains that it's pronounced Cthulhu. Uh, Boy, you can say that. I can't even, I can't even imagine saying <laughs> it. It takes practice. <laughs> uh, I have it, that book, actually. Well, he, he was actually uh, asked, um, well, why, if, if you pronounce it why don't you spell it that way and he said well that's the people that's the way the people in my dream spelled it and pronounced it so you know I, I pass that on for what it's worth uh, <laughs> but um, it took me five months to write that short novelette and uh, I had just sent it off and I got a phone call in the evening from a uh, guy named Roger Elwood, who was starting Laser Books. And well, I remember Laser Books. Yes. Uh, I used to buy a lot of those. Well, uh, they destroyed the careers of quite a number of people. <laughs> and he tried to give, I'd, you know, this is 1976. Mm -hmm. he, he tried to give me a contract to write two novels. And I refused it, not because I thought it was a bad idea, but it had just taken me five months to write a novelette. I did not think I could write a novel. And you can't cheat an honest man. I mean, I, I looked at my skills and I said, my skill set is not sufficient to permit me to do this in a respectable fashion. Therefore, I refused it. And so you stepped with your right foot out of the Yes, truck. exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, you, you look like it, it people like Tom Monteleone, who, yes, there his first novel is, and, you know, look where his career has gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, I mean, it's, 
it really was that that simple. But yeah, uh, everything is a choice. <laughs> everything is a choice. <laughs> now, now you've written a, a lot of kind of heroic fantasy. Yes, I have. Or maybe heroic. Oh, is, no, no, is both. Both. I mean, I mean I've, I've written Tolkien-esque fantasy, mm -hmm. and I've written uh, Robert E. Howard-ish mm -hmm. fantasy, both. But yes. Uh, talk about that kind of fantasy and how your experience in Vietnam plays into that and gets transmuted into that kind of setting. Because, you know, we think of fantasy, and we think of, you know, like you say, Tolkien and Robert E. Howard. Mm -hmm. uh, Tell us how the 20th century gets turned into something before the first. Uh, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I um, all right. My my undergraduate background was history and Latin, as mm -hmm. I say, and um, I'm not so much. I am not so much a historian as an antiquarian mm. of stuff. Uh, you know, I get that's how Lovecraft. Is described himself well yes but that's actually correct and mm -hmm. it's, it's very different uh, it's a very different mindset mm -hmm. uh, it's the the difference between Polybius on the one hand and Dionysius of Halicarnassus on the other mm -hmm. uh, are you writing history or are you writing down really interesting neat bits about the past Mm -hmm. and, and that's a completely different attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And it isn't that one is right and the other is wrong, but it is noteworthy that the, the formal historians are generally, even the very good ones like Thucydides and Polybius, are trying to hammer reality into a template that fits their model, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the antiquarians are likely to include information that the historians would exclude, but which becomes valuable for a later generation, which has a different paradigm. Mm -hmm. And so there, it, it, and you, you do unfortunately have the fact that the, uh, the antiquarians may well be suckers. You know, they, they may be believing nonsense, but uh, it's I find this very funny. Uh, we know that the Carthaginians sent uh, <clears throat> a ship, a, a group of ships around, you know, they, they actually circumnavigated Africa mm -hmm. uh, from the Suez, from the eastern side around uh, uh, Indian Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, and then up into the Mediterranean. We know they did that. Mm -hmm. We know they did that because the account is given by Strabo, uh, a Roman historian. Mm -hmm. uh, but Strabo is giving it as an obvious lie. Mm, interesting. This, this because he knows it could not be true because of what they say about the position of the sun. And mm -hmm. this could not be true. Well, what it means to us is they were below the equator. And they were accurately depicting what the sun looked like from below the equator. But because Strabo had never been below the equator and no one he knew had, he thought that the thing that actually proves they did what they claimed was false, and he gives it as a lie. And so there, there's where the historian is 
you know, if it weren't that he wanted to make this obvious lie mm. obvious, he would have simply dropped that information because it couldn't be true. Mm. You know, there's where the historian is a problem, and the antiquarian uh, will give you stuff that this is kind of a weird thing to be talking about on a. Uh, but anyway, it, it's something <laughs> no, that fascinates it's, me. It, it's, uh, it's very pertinent, and I'll tell you why. I, I was looking at S.T. Joshi's work, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things he's very interested in is the worldview of writers. And your worldview is ha has some really startling, you know, high points on it that are extremely <laughs> wildly. Con High points or low points, <laughs> as the way you may <laughs> decide to choose. Yeah, uh, but I think it really informs your fiction, and, and it informs your choice to use fantasy as a, as a means of telling stories about now, because that's one of the things that we read, when we read science fiction, or when we read fantasy, or we read even historical, historical fiction, mm -hmm. there's this tendency to think that it's about that time. If you're reading, uh, uh, somebody writes a story about, you know, ancient Rome now that they're writing about ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. Or if they're writing about the far future, they're writing that the story is really about mm -hmm. the far future. That's not the case. Exactly. 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 That, and, and that's something uh, we are writing about our time. If we are writing about a different time, it is the different time through the filter of our time because that's all we know. But if you get deep enough, I, I did not, not something that's out yet. It'll, you know, it's a tour release in uh, July of 2010. Uh, but I've written something with a real Roman background. And frankly, I'm a little concerned about it because I know a fair amount about Rome. And I'm giving people the attitudes of Romans of their day. And um, this isn't always politically correct. It isn't always very nice. And as I say in the preface, uh, there's going to be a lot of references to servants. Servant means slave. And you can have good masters and bad masters. And nonetheless, you are talking about what was under Roman law, furniture with a tongue. And <laughs> that, that was the technical term, furniture mm. with a tongue. And when a 19th century lady's maid got slapped by her mistress, she might be afraid to, to speak up or she'd lose her job. Uh, if a Roman mistress got incensed at her maid uh, because she thought that the uh, maid was having it off with her own boyfriend um, when he'd come to visit her, she could have the maid whipped to death. And this is, I'm sorry, th this, this is just the reality of the time. And your worldview decides to reveal that to us and talk about it because I've read, I mean, we've read lots of Roman history that hasn't included that. Well, and so this is a part of your, this is a choice on your part too. It's not just history. It's a choice on your part to look at that part of the history and say, this is really what happened. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not writing, look, I'm not trying to write 
a book to say that slavery is bad any more than I was writing stories to say that war is bad. Mm -hmm. But if you show the reality, uh, people will understand that it's bad. What they won't always understand is that you know it's bad. And in the early 70s, when the Hammer stuff started coming out, I had a lot of people uh, who considered me a monster because I was writing about these horrible, horrible things, and I didn't understand that they were horrible. I understood pretty well that they were horrible. I'd been there, thank you. <laughs> uh, but I didn't, nobody had had to tell me that, you know, watching a, a gutshot girl bleed out was horrible. Uh, she'd been hauling rice for the VC, and her escort shot at uh, Thunder Run at a, a patrol, and the patrol shot back, and um, the escort got away, and the girl, who was simply a 15-year-old from a village who was being forced to push a bicycle loaded with rice down a stretch of road, was gut shot, and she died. And, you know, um, that's horrible. And would the patrol have done the same thing? Yeah, yeah, they were shot at. They you know, she was an enemy. It's they were they happy that they'd killed a girl? No, but that's that's what happens in the situation. I would describe things like that, and I would not say, and this was horrible. Uh, well, the readers, the ones who weren't vets, certainly realized it was horrible, but they assumed because I didn't say so that I didn't know that. Hell, yes, I knew that. Um, but it's that flat affect. Mm -hmm. um, the confusing the author and the narrator yes. and the storyteller. Yes, yes, but, but that's, that's absolutely standard, and it is standard in any group, but it tends to be particularly the ones who are holier than thou. Mm. Well, it's also, I mean, by keeping that flat affect, it makes your fiction more durable, through more readable now than it might have been. Yeah, uh, ac actually, it's it's not an accident that the Hammer stories have been in print ever since you know their first book publication. Um, you know, there there has never been a time those have been out of print, which is really pretty remarkable. We're talking thirty years. Now, <laughs> in a small way, I was an innovator. I wanted <coughs> to ask you about uh, a man you mentioned earlier, Carl Edward Wagner. Mm -hmm. um, Tell us what happened to Carl Edward Wagner. He was a remarkably, remarkably talented man. Yes, he was. Um, but he, he, in the end... Booze? He Jack Daniels. No, it's really that simple. Jack Daniels. Uh, he, he drank himself to death. He drank himself out of the capacity to write connected narrative. His last novel... Uh, came out in 1978. By the time he died in 1994, he had made a number of attempts at writing a novel, and had they had all petered out at 20,000 words or less. Uh, the and I was there the whole time, and I don't understand. But he. I think, I mean, you know, Carl always drank, mm -hmm. but, you know, uh, this this does not make him unusual. Um, 
I think that he found himself unable to continue writing and then the drink took over rather than the other way around. I, you know, I, I, in the late 70s when his capacity to write novels stopped, I do not think that it was the booze at that point that prevented it. Um, but the booze became all there was. Uh, and it, he, used, he used other drugs also, but that was not, um, it, basically, his drug of choice was Jack Daniels. It's really that simple. Talk about his work as a fantasist and, and, and you know, some of your relationship with him because there's, a, there's not dissimilar. I mean, he has a very, uh, I'd say, uh, my foot land came out on the right foot instead of the left foot of perception as well. Yeah, uh, there, are, there are a lot of differences as well as similarities between me and Carl. He always intended to be a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, that was his focus. Uh, he stayed out of Vietnam uh, very consciously by going to, to medical school. That was the one thing, uh, medical school and divinity school. Mm -hmm. Those were the, the two things that they would not draft you out of. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so he, you know, that was a conscious decision on his part. But he, all, he wanted to be an MD, and he, as, as a friend of his from, um, <coughs> uh, from Kenyon College, pointed out, uh, you don't have an undergraduate major from Kenyon and wind up with enough pre-med courses to get into pre-med. To, to get into medical school at UNC unless you're really working at it, and, and he did. Uh, he wanted to be an MD, and he wanted to be a writer, and he very consciously set out to do both those things and did them. Um, he was writing heroic fantasy. Uh, his, his starting place was uh, the Robert E. Howard's fiction, but he always emphasized that it was 19th century romantic literature, uh, Byron, uh, Matteron, uh, Charles Matteron, the, the monk, uh, this sort of thing that was informing his view of heroic fantasy. And uh, a very highly educated man, a very intelligent man, uh, very knowledgeable on pulps and an extremely impressive person in, in all senses. But what happened was he went to drink. By the time he decided, he got disgusted with heroic fantasy because I think, and a friend of mine who's cataloged his letters emphasizes this, uh, he became disgusted with the low quality of the fans he had writing heroic fantasy. Uh, there Interesting. Were he wanted readers who could engage him at the level he was writing at, which is Byronic, and I mean, yes. that's, that's, yes. that's yes. a high level of literature, and that's not the same as, as Robert E. Howard. As much as we like Robert E. Howard, he was not all, Byron. All, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, and so at, at every convention there'd be some 18-year-old with a skin of wine 
who'd tell Carl he was just the, <clears throat> the greatest thing ever. And there was always this, this string of 18-year-olds, and it was always the 18-year-olds. And, and they were going to write the goodest thing ever themselves. And uh, that, I think, as much as anything, drove him out of heroic fantasy. And he started writing horror. He'd always written some horror. He started getting serious about horror uh, because it had a higher level of readership. Unfortunately, by that time, he was beyond being able to write novels. Mm. And you had the horror boom of the 80s, and mm -hmm. he actually did get a contract, mm -hmm. uh, quite a good you know, $65,000 contract from, from Bantam, which was pissing money down the drain in lots of ways. Uh, but uh, he, he got a very good contract uh, from Bantam for a horror novel. At the time of his death, gee, eight, nine years later, uh, there are two pages about the heroine's lingerie. Mm. And that's all he had written on that in, in that time. And that was with an existing short story that he was going to model mm. it, it on, uh, Fourth Seal. Um, was that, uh, did that end up in the uh, American Tales of the Fantastic? No, he didn't get it in there, did he? No. Um, I don't know if. I don't think he made I, it. I, I, don't, I don't know that he did. Um, he, he wrote some extremely effective horror stories. I particularly liked um, Neither Brute Nor Human, mm. from, since this is uh, a Poe-centered uh, world fantasy con, I'll, I'll mention, is, is, of course, from The Bells. Uh, they are neither man nor woman. They are neither brute nor human. They are ghouls. Mm. And that was his view of fandom. <laughs> no, I, it's it's quite literally Carl's view of you. You know what I said about um, the um, you know what drove him out of heroic fantasy. Read neither brute nor human, and he's he's very explicit about it there. Now, <laughs> that that is actually insightful. Now that I think about <laughs> what I just said. <laughs> it's gosh, maybe it's come. Coming up on uh, 40 years since you re-entered the world. Yeah, and January 15th, 1971. So we're we're he we're headed for it. We're yeah. headed for it. Yeah. Um, and you're still writing. Yes, and I am. Still writing genre fiction. Yes, I am. Uh, tell us about that choice now, as opposed to then. Um, ever since in the mid 90s, 96 actually, I wrote. Redliners, which was, it was intended just to be a standard military SF adventure, and it wound up, I got just all sorts of stuff out of my system. It's about redemption. And I had no idea when I was writing it what was happening. And I finished it, and I just felt like 20 tons had been taken off my shoulders. And... I won't say I put Vietnam behind me because I didn't, but it allowed me to get my head up out of there, and I can still look down into it, and I do, but I'm not living in that anymore. And since then, 
I have been writing heroic fantasy and space opera that uh, it would be sharp-edged for other people, but it isn't for me. I mean, you know, take, take some of the Hammer stories on the one side or Forlorn Hope or Redliners and, uh, you know, compare them with the space operas I'm writing now and they're just happier <laughs> books. You, you know, I, as I say, I, I don't mean that people aren't making hard decisions and that bad things happen. And, you know, one of the, <laughs> as I, I said to somebody who'd, who'd asked to be Tuckerized to have his name used in one of the books and then was horrified that his character is a slave dealer. And I, I said, well, for pity's sake, you've got a series in which the heroine is a borderline psychotic who kills people and has real trouble sleeping, and the hero is a womanizing drunk. And what did you think you were going to have? <laughs> but but you know they're genuine. They're they're happy books. They are people who've come to an accommodation and who do positive things, and the books have positive results, which frankly the the hammer stuff the closest thing to a positive result is, well, the viewpoint character is alive. And, and just how positive that is depends on, you know, how you feel about the viewpoint character. Um, didn't help me a lot. Uh, well, I think it did. <laughs> I think it eventually, I think it really did. You are a lot happier now, I'm thinking. I, 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 I swear to God, I... I'm awfully, awfully fortunate that I had the writing to turn to, even though I didn't know I was doing that. And I'm, I'm just so lucky. And I, I talk to people about, you know, who, who work at rescue missions and soup kitchens and how many nom vets they have. And there but for the grace of God. Uh, you know, I, I come from a long line of male drunks, and so I never started drinking. I, you know, I knew it was a choice, and, and the choice, <laughs> there, that word again, uh, there were no men in my family who were social drinkers. There were guys who were teetotal, and there were guys who were luscious, and um, it was my choice. So I didn't start drinking. I never turned that way. So I, I found another way out, but, you know, I... I, I was I was a very angry person when I came back to the world. Very angry. Uh, I had a a department head when I was working for the town screaming at me, and it, it was funny. He was he was screaming at me, and I was looking at the situation. Well, I'll come around his desk to the right. He's a little guy, and I will pick him up by the neck and the seat of the pants, and I will throw him through the picture window. To his right. It's, uh, and and I, I mean, I was just planning how I was going to do it. And you know, his desk was in a corner, so he, he couldn't have gotten away. And he stopped screaming. And I had said a word. <laughs> 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 but I, I, I think he did have a notion that 
this was not going to go in a good way, and it wasn't going to be a good way for me either, understand, but he was the one who was going out the window. And, and that, was, that was no fooling. That wasn't, and that wasn't a, I wasn't furious. It was, no, I, I'm going to kill him, and this is how I'm going to do it. And all right, uh, he should not have been screaming. I mean, he was a, he was a nasty little bully, but that was not... The Stephen uh, King term is officious little prick. From, uh, that, from The Shining. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And, and that's, that's uh, uh, and he would not have been much lost to the world. But, uh, but that, is not, that is not a proper response. And, mm. and that, uh, I, I didn't have a governor. That is, anything, end game was me killing somebody. You know, there, it, it was all a continuum. And I never did it. I, you know, that was the only time I got really close to it. But I, I was not really safe to be around, um, and and I knew it. And I didn't admit I knew it, but but I, I'm not stupid. Um, but I just I needed to do something. And the writing was the something. And if I hadn't had the writing. It might have been something else, and that wouldn't have been as good. I've been speaking with David Drake. He's the author of the Hammer Slammer series. Thank you for joining me, David. <laughs> this has been really quite interesting. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.